I'm Ellen Hay, Professor of Public International Law at Erasmus School of Law, Erasmus University, Rotterdam. In this lecture, I address international law manifesting itself as public law, that is, as international law with characteristics of public law. I will thus, introduce, I will thus address international law as a body of law that also seeks to address the common interests of the international community, instead of a body of law that, in, that addresses only the interests that states share. More in particular, I will focus on questions regarding the legitimacy and accountability that this development has given rise to. My point in this lecture is that we are not just dealing with difficult problems, such as climate change or terrorism, but at the same time in engaging in introducing systemic change into the international legal system. Relevant examples of Security Council regulations, such as those adopted to counter terrorism, as well as decisions adopted by the World Bank and the conferences of the parties to multilateral environmental agreements. In all these cases, the decisions taken affect not only states, but also individuals and groups in society. And I will return to these examples later on in this lecture. In this lecture, First, I will set the scene by addressing the nature of the systemic change that is being introduced into the international legal system. Thereafter, I will address traits of the public law system that is being developed. Then, I will address the question how we might conceptualize these developments in terms of international law. And finally, I will draw a few conclusions. I will now address the nature of the ongoing systemic change in the international legal system. One might summarize the issues at stake as follows. The international community increasingly, as a result of the process of globalization, is seeking to address common interest problems, and in doing so, it affects the interest of states and also individuals and groups in society. Common interest problems involve complex interrelationships between states, international organizations, and individuals and groups. Human rights law, international criminal law, international environmental law, and the law on the use of force provide examples of this development. The legal system, what I call the traditional international legal system, the legal system that is being employed to regulate these complex relationships, however, was not developed with these type of complex relationships in mind. The traditional international legal system rather was developed for purposes of addressing the interests that states as such share. Examples of relevant areas of law are the law on boundary delimitation, on diplomatic immunities and diplomatic relations more in general. However, increasingly, even these areas of law have to interact with those areas of international law that have taken on characteristics of public law. Two examples may serve to illustrate this point. First, the International Court of Justice in La Grande and in Avena found that Article 36, Paragraph 1 of the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations creates individual rights, an element of public law in one of the oldest areas of international law, i.e. the law on consular relations. Second, the law on boundary limitations is intimately related to human rights law and the protection of minority rights in particular, 
as was demonstrated by the work of the Badinter Commission in relation to the breakup of Yugoslavia. The coexistence of traditional international law and international public law is not always unproblematic. In fact, when the two meet, problems and uncertainty may arise. In the 2002 decision of the International Court of Justice in the arrest warrant case provides an illustration. In this case, the relationship between the law on immunities, belonging to the trad traditional pattern of international law, and international humanitarian law, belonging to international public law, were at stake. Due to the formulation of the question put to the court by the applicant, the court refrained from addressing the relationship between these two bodies of law. The result? Uncertainty. The traditional international legal system thus sought to regulate interstate relationships instead of relationships that involve a host of different types of actors. This implies that when we are addressing complex problems, think for example of climate change, we are developing new substantive rules to address those problems, but we are also engaged in introducing systemic change into the international legal system and thereby changing its structure. In the case of climate change, for example, we are searching for ways to directly involve private actors into the flexible mechanisms of the Kyoto Protocol, mechanisms such as the Clean Development Mechanism. And the prototype carbon fund established by the World Bank provides an example of how this may be done. In other words, we are engaged in both developing new substantive legal solutions for complex problem and at the same time engaged in systematically or fundamentally changing the international legal system. Among other things, this ongoing systemic change challenges the centrality of the concept of state consent in the international legal system as traditionally conceived. My point in this respect is that state consent in the traditional legal system served to bind a state to a rule of law or a set of rules in the form of a treaty, while state's consent in international public law serves to commit a state to participate in a process of normative development. And I will return to this point later on in my lecture. Introducing systemic change into the legal system can be compared to changing the rules of the game and thus ultimately changing the game itself, which leads to uncertainty and opposition. Changing the rules of the game, <coughs> even where a simple game of Scrabble is concerned, attracts opposition, especially from those who have a vested interest in the game as it stands. Think of, dis think of the discussions that prospective Scrabble players may get engaged in when trying to agree on, for example, the rules of spelling that are to govern the game that they are about to play. Is it to be US spelling, UK spelling, or a mixture of the two? Moreover, <coughs> consider how the discussion tends to escalate when such rules are being questioned during the course of a game of Scrabble. In case of the international legal system, the game, of course, is ongoing. We cannot renegotiate the rules before we start playing, as we may do with the game of Scrabble. We are thus changing the rules of the game while the game is ongoing, and needless to say, this can lead to opposition. 
Opposition comes from a variety of quarters, including states with vested interest in the system as it stands. Think of, for example, of the difficult negotiations in the WTO Doha round, which the Director General of the WTO, Pascal Ami, in March of 2010, characterized as follows, and I quote. So Pascal Ami said, my starting point will be that we, although we have made some progress since, to, since 2008, there is no denying the fact that we are not where we wanted to be today, end of quote. In the WTO negotiations, the stakes are high when it comes to issues such as, for example, subsidies to fishing activities. Also think about the reservations that are expressed by international lawyers who have been educated in the system as it was and who may feel uncomfortable in the face of uncertainty. In order to enable lawyers to work with uncertainty, those who are presently attending law school should learn how to work with ongoing systemic change in the international legal system. They should not only learn about relevant rules and institutions, but also how this, about how the system is changing. And importantly, they should acquire the skills required to engage with a changing international legal system. Such skills include the ability to perceive international law from a variety of perspectives, and the ability to translate those perspectives into the issues at hand in negotiations. Systemic change, of course, needs to be presented to students, in addition to the doctrines of the traditional international legal system. For change cannot be understood without understanding what is and where it came from. This lecture, albeit in somewhat of a summary fashion, illustrates how I explain ongoing change to my students. I will now address two changes that have been introduced into the international legal system and that harbor traits of public law. These concern, first, international bodies supervising states when they are exercising public powers, and secondly, the exercise of public powers by international organizations. Traditionally, international law, this was conceived of as law that primarily regulated interstate relationships, giving rise to rights and duties for states only, and with individuals and groups not deriving rights or duties directly from international law. The state itself was conceived as a proverbial black box in which the manner in which it regulated the relationships between itself and its citizens was regarded as within the domestic jurisdiction of the state in question. In addition, the point of departure was that a state was bound by a rule of international law or a set of rules in the form of a treaty only if that state had expressly consented to be bound by the rules or treaty in question. In line with this point of departure, international organizations were conceived of, of as cooperative efforts between states, which in principle could not adopt decisions that affected those states without the formal consent of the states concerned. Tra the traditional international legal system, because of these traits, in fact resembled the law of contract, that is private law, instead of public law. But especially since the 1950s, that picture has changed. In other words, the box is no longer black. 
Human rights law introduced the concept that individuals possess rights under international law and that states have duties to uphold those rights. International criminal law has imposed duties on individuals as well as the obligation on states to ensure that those duties are observed and that if they are not observed that the perpetrators be prosecuted. International bodies such as the European Court of Human Rights, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, the African, African Court on Human and People's Rights, the Human Rights Committee and other treaty-based bodies, and the International Criminal Court all play an important role in applying relevant rights and duties, and in doing so, develop the law. The Aarhus Compliance Mechanism, moreover, is relevant in this context. The Aarhus Convention concerns transparency, participation and access to justice in environmental matters and allows individuals whose rights have been violated to submit complaints to the Aarhus Compliance Committee. The Aarhus Convention thereby extends the right of individuals to submit complaints against their own state to an international body beyond the law of human rights to international environmental law. International mechanisms have thus been established which supervise the exercise of public powers by states and such mechanisms of individuals and groups in society as well as the common interest. A second trait which illustrates the public character of international law is the fact that certain international bodies such as the UN Security Council, the World Bank and the conferences of the parties to multilateral environmental agreements are exercising public powers. In case of the Security Council, relevant resolutions are those on counter-terrorism and on decisions regarding the governance of territory, such as those adopted in relation to Kosovo. <coughs> These decisions directly engage the rights and duties of individuals and groups in society. In case of the World Bank and the conferences of the parties to multilateral environmental agreements, public powers are exercised by way of rules and regulations that technically do not qualify as rules of international law because they are not legally binding. Such rules, however, may have significant effects on states as well as individuals and groups in society. In the case of the World Bank, relevant examples are those on environmental impact assessment and on the rights <coughs> of individuals and groups to participate in assessing projects prior to approval by the bank. In case of the meeting of the parties to the Kyoto Protocol, relevant rules are those, <coughs> for example, on uh, participation in the flexible mechanisms, such as the Clean Development Mechanism, in which both states as well as private corporations participate. The expansion of public powers exercised by international institutions has attracted significant debate in recent years. This among other reasons is because when public powers that were previously exercised by states are exercised by international institutions, those powers may no longer be subject to controls associated with democracy, constitutionalism, and the rule of law. Such controls exist to various degrees in states, and in many cases were the result of long and difficult processes 
in which <coughs> individuals have put forward claims for more transparent and accountable government, as well as respect for individual and groups' rights. With the exercise of public powers by international institutions, the entitlements resulting from such processes at the national level may be lost and are being reasserted at the international level of decision-making. How best might we then conceive of these developments in terms of international law? Antonio Cassese, in his student textbook entitled International Law, posits the problem by referring to two patterns of international law that currently operate side by side. He refers to the two patterns as the old and the new, the traditional and the modern, as well as the Grotian and the Kantian patterns of international law. These patterns are reminiscent of the, <coughs> the twin concepts of international law introduced by Wolfgang Friedman. He refers to them as the law of coexistence and the law of cooperation. Indebted to these two authors and others, I choose to refer to the two patterns as the interstate normative pattern and the common interest normative pattern. The interstate normative pattern is dis discernible in the traditional international legal system that regulates interstate relationships. The common interest pattern refers to a pattern that seeks to regulate relationships that involve the common interest of the international community as a whole and which, as stated earlier, involves a complex set of relationships between different types of actors, including states, international organizations, and individuals and groups in society. Besides the difference in nature of the relationships that each of the two normative patterns seeks to address, the two patterns also can be distinguished on the basis of the role that state consent plays in each of them. In the interstate normative pattern, the concept, concept of state consent is pivotal to the legally binding character of a rule, and thus a status as a rule of law. In other words, a state is no, not legally bound by a rule or a set of rules in the form of a treaty unless that state has consented to that rule or treaty in question. The law of treaties, as contained in the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, illustrates the importance of state consent in the interstate normative pattern, especially where its rules on reservations are concerned, that is, Article 19 through 23 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. These rules entail that when reservations are made to a multilateral treaty, they have the potential of turning the treaty into a network of bilateral re legal relationships, each with a different content depending on the content of the reservation submitted and the reactions thereto by other state parties to the treaty. Imagine, if you will, a game of Scrabble in which each set of two players participating in the game play according to a different set of rules agreed to among the two of them. Are they all playing the same game? In international law, the emergence of such a situation, of course, can be prevented by the treaty in question prohibiting the making of reservations, as Article 19 of the Vienna Convention provides. Examples of treaties that have taken this approach, i.e. that have prohibited reservations, are the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea and the United Framework Convention on Climate Change, 
as well as most other multilateral environmental agreements. Such treaties prohibit the making of reservations and thereby maintain the unity of the treaty and protect the common interest. <clears throat> I return to the pivotal nature of state consent in the interstate normative pattern. In the interstate normative pattern, as mentioned, states consent to a rule or a set of rules in the form of a treaty, and the rules derive their legally binding character from such consent. Moreover, in the interstate normative pattern, the assumption also is that rules so adopted are legitimate. This implies that in the interstate normative pattern, legitimacy is treated as a normative issue, i.e. the decision is legit legitimate if adopted in accordance with an agreed decision-making procedure in which state consent is pivotal. And in case of a treaty harboring a decision-making procedure, the legitimacy of the decision-making procedure itself is not of concern except at the moment when the treaty is adopted. This, I suggest, is different in the common interest pattern. In the common interest normative pattern, state consent plays a different role and is often very far removed in time, often decades, from the decision taken. It is this difference in time between the moment at which state consent is given and the moment at which a decision is taken which gives, which gives rise to questions regarding legitimacy. What happens in practice may be characterized as follows. States consent to a treaty that harbors a decision-making procedure which enables the adoption of rules and regulations without the formal consent of states and such decisions may be legally binding or non-legally binding. A pertinent example is the decision-making procedure in the UN Security Council on the basis of Article 27 of the Charter. In this case, states, when consenting to the Charter, consent to a <coughs> decision-making procedure in the UN Security Council, whereby 15 states, with five states having the right to veto, are endowed with the competence to ad adopt decisions that legally bind all members of the organization. Decision-making procedures in other international institutions also may result in the adoption of so-called soft law. Such decisions, although technically not legal bi legally binding, also may significantly affect states that have not consented to the decisions taken, as well as the individuals and groups within those states. Examples again are the practice of international organizations such as the World Bank and treaty-based bodies such as the conferences of the parties to multilateral environmental agreements. While the World Bank can adopt legally binding decisions, many of the decisions that, operates op that govern its operations, such as operational standards and procedures, are legally non-binding but may significantly involve the interests of states and individuals and groups. Relevant examples on the groups and individuals that are to be consulted prior to the approval of projects by the World Bank. Similarly, the decisions taken by the meeting of the parties and other bodies of limited composition within, for example, the climate change regime are legally non-binding 
but they can have significant, in fact, quite enormous effects for states and for individuals and groups. For example, on their right to participate in projects under the Clean Development Mechanism. Noteworthy in all these examples is the fact that while states may not have consented to the rules and regulations that eventually govern their activities and those of individuals and groups within their jurisdiction, the states in, in question did consent, or at least consented to, to the contours of the decision-making procedures when they ratified or acceded to the treaty in question. As a result, the role that state consent plays in these examples, which all concern the common interest normative pattern, has changed. States, in these cases, can be characterized as consenting to a process of normative development, the outcome of which is unknown at the time when they give their consent, i.e. when they ratify or otherwise become a party to the treaty. For example, a state might have ratified the UN Charter in the 1950s, thereby consenting to a process of normative development based on Article 27 of the Charter. And it may today be bound by decisions of the UN Security Council, which it could not have foreseen during the 1950s. Similarly, a state may have become a party to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Kyoto Protocol, and today be faced by decisions of the Clean Development Mechanism Executive Board, which hadn't even, is not even established within the treaties, but it was established later on by decisions of the Conference of the Parties. As a result of this development, a state is no longer consenting to a specific rule or to a treaty. Instead, a state is consenting to a decision-making process that will result in rules and regulations that will apply to it and that may directly affect individuals and groups within a jurisdiction. Moreover, state consent on its own is no longer perceived as offering a sufficient basis to legitimize decisions that are the outcome of decision-making processes and procedures. Instead, the legitimacy of the decision-making processes and procedure themselves become our focus of attention. And the question arises whether the decision-making processes and procedures are so structured as to legitimize the decisions taken. Think of the ongoing decisions about United Nations reform as, a well, as well as about the reform of the Bretton Woods institutions. One of the most challenging questions that we face in this context is how the exercise of public powers by an international organization can be legitimized, given that state consent no longer fully plays that role, and whether this can be done through processes other than those associated with democracy. The question regarding democracy surfaces because of the lack of a demos or a community of individuals at the international level. While opinions differ about the possibility of introducing democracy at the international level, there seems to be consensus that introducing democracy at that level, at the international level, will not be viable in the near future. Instead, the literature suggests that the decision-making processes and procedures themselves require our attention. 
enhance transparency, introducing more equitable participation, and adopting mechanisms that enable decision-making institutions to be held accountable are among the factors that are frequently referred to as ways forward. Enhancing transparency concerns both openness of meeting and decision-making processes and also of documentation. And a very interesting example is the website of the Clean Development Mechanism under the Kyoto Protocol. That website gives access to an enormous amount of documents, including pr project documents, and also is the place through which the executive board of the CDM, the Clean Development Mechanisms, engages in discussion with civil society about major aspects of its policies. Equitable participation concerns both participation among states and participation of relevant individuals and groups. Where more equitable participation among states is concerned, the Global Environment Facility provides an example. The Global Environment Facility, during the early 1990s, was transformed from a donor-driven into a universal organization in which both donor and recipient states participate on an equal footing. <coughs> Where more equitable participation of individuals and groups is concerned, the policies of the World Bank and other development banks provide an example. These policies require that the state in question here potentially affected individuals and groups prior to the approval of projects by the bank. The introduction of an ombudsperson in the UN Interim Administration Mission in Kosovo, known as UNMIC, also provides an example. In this case, individuals and groups were entitled to submit complaints regarding the administration of Kosovo to the ombudsperson. The last example, the ombudsperson for UNMIC, also illustrates another trend in international law the introduction of procedures which enable individuals and groups to submit complaints if to international organizations if these international organizations affect their interests negatively. Another example of such a procedure is the World Bank Inspection Panel and similar mechanisms established by other development banks. These procedures enable individuals and groups to submit a complaint against the bank in question if they find that they are being harmed by activities supported by the bank, which are in violation of the bank's own internal rules, such as the rules I mentioned previously on environmental impact assessment and on the individuals and groups that are to be heard prior to the approval of projects. Another recent example of an accountability mechanism is the appointment of an ombudsperson to review the delisting request of those listed in Security Council resol resolutions targeting terrorism. All of these developments can be characterized as steps to incorporate into in the international legal system the idea of a public domain in which delegated public power is to be exercised in the public interest and thus is, subject, is to be subject to limitations and requirements of accountability. Enhancing the accountability of international institutions, including organizations and treaty-based bodies, is a topic that has attracted significant attention, both from private bodies such as the International Law Association, which has studied the topic, 
and within the United Nations system where the subject has been considered by the International Law Commission. The accountability mechanisms discussed above may not be perfect, can be improved, and may need to be introduced more widely in other international organizations. However, these mechanisms also illustrate a further trait of international public law. That is the recognition of a legally relevant relationship between individuals and groups in society on the one hand and an international organization on the other. The process of normative development at the international level of discussion making as discussed in this lecture is multi-centered and multifaceted, meaning that a host of decision-making processes and procedures as well as actors are involved. In this context, ongoing normative development can be characterized as a process through which society, its members and the legal system are involved in a continuous and mutually communicative process in which society, its members and the legal system are continuously constituting and reconstituting themselves and each other. This is a process that at present is re resulting in the introduction of systemic change into the international legal system. Endeavors to develop public law at the international level will continue and will continue to generate uncertainty also among lawyers. However, if students are given a chance to work with ongoing systemic change in the international legal system in the classroom, the more likely it is that they will be able to work with that systematically changing legal system in practice. I count myself very fortunate at Erasmus School of Law and elsewhere in the world to encounter classrooms that are as diverse as the UN negotiating rooms. Classrooms in which students are willing and able to engage with both patterns of international law and consider the challenges that they will have to face in their professional life due to ongoing systemic change in the international legal system. I thank my students for their willingness to engage with me on this exciting journey involving the development of international public law. Thank you. <laughs>